We're today in the final part of our three-part message series called This is the Year, and it's a series that focuses on how to make healthy and positive changes in our lives, and the beginning of the year is a great time to be thinking about this sort of stuff. This year is going to have a beginning, it's going to have an end, it's going to come and go, and it can either be just another year or it can be a year of significant growth in your life and in my life, and I think we'd both like it to be the latter, and so we'd like to find out more about how to actually make that happen. Over the past two weeks, We've talked about why we would want to make change. Last week, we talked about four keys to bringing about real change. And this week, we're going to look at some more practical tips for succeeding in our desire to change in an encouraging way to view success. I think many times we don't even try to commit to real change because we're so afraid that failure would be crushing. But today, I want to talk about a completely different paradigm, a new way of looking at success and failure. If I were to ask anybody who set themselves a goal for this year or made some sort of resolution how they were going to define success, how they're going to define success, how do you think most people would answer? If I asked the person who wanted to lose weight how they were going to measure success, what would they say? They'd probably say, well, I would base my success on how much weight I lose, right? If I asked the person who wants to put $10,000 into savings this year, how they were gonna measure success, what would they say? They'd say, well, I'll measure my success based on how close I'm able to get to saving those $10,000. The word that we might use to describe the mindset and the paradigm that I'm talking about is the word results. I think we'd all agree that most people measure success and failure based on whether or not they were able to get the results they desired. So make a note of this. The world measures success by results. Something very obvious, I think we'd all agree. The world measures success by results. And I'm not building to a a big finale in today's message. I'm sharing what I believe is one of the most important mindsets for the Christian right off the bat, right at the beginning here. And if you really get this and take it in, I believe it has the ability to transform the way you see almost everything in your life. This perspective change, this paradigm shift is really that significant. I'm astounded by the number of times in the Bible that God calls a man or woman to do something specific, yet in no way holds them responsible for the results of that action. I think of Noah building the ark. You know, it it took him decades and decades to complete it. And the Bible tells us that Noah was preaching while he was building the ark. He's begging people to turn from their wickedness and instead turn to God before the world was destroyed and before it was too late. And apparently, nobody ever responded to Noah's preaching. Nobody. And yet God doesn't show up and say, Noah, you had decades. Couldn't you come up with even one sermon that was good enough to get a response from somebody? God doesn't hold Noah responsible for the results. He holds Noah accountable to do what he has asked Noah to do. That's it. I think of Jeremiah, one of God's most faithful prophets in the Old Testament of the Bible. Scholars have nicknamed him the weeping prophet because his life was so miserable. We've talked about him in detail before. He was called by God to go throughout Israel and tell them, you've rejected God, you're rebelling against God, and now there are going to be serious consequences and some horrible things are going to happen to you. 
Everybody's excited when you roll to town when they know that's the message you're bringing, right? The woe, doom, and despair tour. Are you going? No, I'm not going. Let's try kill Jeremiah instead. And that's what people did. He lived under the constant threat of death. People were always trying to kill him because every time they saw him, he had bad news and it meant bad things were going to happen. Nobody ever listens to Jeremiah. When I say nobody, I mean an entire lifetime spent as one of God's prophets, saying the things that are true that are coming straight from God, an entire lifetime and nobody listens ever to Jeremiah. Nobody. He dies of old age in in Egypt where he's basically hiding out from all the people he's made angry at him throughout his lifetime of ministry. And yet the Bible holds him up as a great man. There's no record of God ever chastising Jeremiah by saying, "Uh, did it ever occur to you to soften up the message with maybe a few illustrations and life examples? Jeremiah, your delivery was awful. You had like 75 years to get it right and still nothing. All the Bible seems to say is, good job, Jeremiah, good job. God doesn't hold him responsible for the results of what he was called to do. God only holds him responsible for doing what he was called to do. There was, however, one man in the Bible who decided that results were the most important thing. In fact, he decided that his definition of results was the most important thing. And that man was Israel's first king, a man named Saul. I'm gonna ask you, if you would, to turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. I'll give you some extra time in case you need to turn to the index in the front of your Bible and go find 1 Samuel 15. And we're just gonna begin right at the beginning of that chapter. 1 Samuel 15. It says this. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Samuel's a prophet, a legit prophet. He says, Saul, God made you king. Now I'm giving you a message, an instruction straight from the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Why the Lord asked them to wipe out absolutely everybody is a conversation for another day. If you're bothered by that, come talk to me afterwards and I'll walk you through it. Verse four, so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them, that just means counted them, in Telaim. And he counted 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. So God has sent a message to Saul through the prophet Samuel, wipe out Amalek, the entire ethnic group, off the face of the earth. That's the instruction. So Saul goes, okay, let's go do it. Verse 6, then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, and get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So he says, get the innocent Kenites out of here. He says, get out of here, there's gonna be a slaughter. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. 
and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So they kept the king alive. They were supposed to kill him. They kept all the best sheep and oxen and lambs and cattle. They weren't supposed to do that. Verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told to Samuel saying, Saul went to Carmel and indeed he set up a monument for himself and he's gone on around, passed by and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, well... They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Interesting, the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep, and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, now underline this if it's not underlined in your Bible, this first line, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, and then underline this, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. And then underline this, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. It's the same thing in the eyes of God. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. You see, Saul took the approach of, it would be so much better to bring back King Agag, so that we can parade him and make a spectacle of him and show off this great military victory we have. And it would be so much better to bring all the best cattle back here and have a huge church service where we sacrifice all of them. That would be a much better result than what God asked me to do, right? And you know what? From a human perspective, Saul is right. It would have been a big patriotic victory celebration. But was God most interested in results? Was God most interested in how big the sacrifices and offerings would be? No. What was God interested in? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God was interested in one thing. He's interested in obedience. And this is the big key. I desperately, desperately want us to understand. Make a note of this. The Christian measures success by obedience to the Lord. 
the Christian measures success by obedience to the Lord. You see, the world measures success by results, but the Christian measures success by obedience to the Lord. This concept has been made so clear to me over the last few years of my life. Often when the Lord comes to you and he speaks a specific word to you, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's often not for that moment. It's for later on. And many times you think it's for that moment, but later on when you look back on that word, you go, whoa, I had no idea how precious what God shared with me four years ago, five years ago, ten years ago would be right now in this moment. And what God is doing is he's just reminding you, I told you that five years ago, ten years ago, so that this moment you would look back and realize I had a plan the whole time. I was faithful the whole time. I was with you the whole time. That's why we always write that stuff down. If someone gives you a word from God and you're like, "Uh, doesn't mean a whole lot to me right now, you just go write it down. Just write it down and let it sit because the day may come when it'll be very, very powerful. You know, just a few weeks after God called my family and I to, to move back to Vancouver and plant this church, God spoke to me with a clarity I've only experienced a few times in my life. And God said to me, he said, Jeff, why are you going to go plant a church in Vancouver? And I said, well, because there's, there's people there who need to know Jesus. People need to be saved. And God said, it's not a good enough reason. Why are you going to go plant a church? I was, I was puzzled and I thought about it and I said, well, because there's it's not a lot of churches really teaching the Bible and I just, just believe that's my calling and it's so important to teach your word. And, and God said, it's not a good enough reason. Why are you going to plant a church in Vancouver? And at this point, I'm like, I don't know. I, I was just flabbergasted because it's, it's like being a kid in a Sunday school class and you put your hand up and you say, Jesus, and the teacher says, that's the wrong answer. And you're like, what do you mean it's the wrong answer? This is Sunday school. Jesus is always the right answer. What are you talking about? And, and then the Lord said to me, he said, Jeff, The only acceptable reason to plant a church in Vancouver is to be obedient to what I've asked you to do. Obedience is the only acceptable answer. And God said, there won't always be people getting saved. There won't always be people who are hungry for Bible teaching. And if those results are your motivation, you're going to lose hope and you're going to give up if those things don't happen. And God said to me, Jeff, success is obeying me It's that simple. And that's the only acceptable reason for you to go and do this. And I thought it was profound at the time, but I I had no idea how true and precious that word from the Lord would become to me over the coming years. And most of the time when the Lord calls us to do something, it's it's akin to tilling the soil, planting the seeds, pulling out the weeds. It's all important work. But none of that stuff guarantees a harvest. You see, what you need in order to have a harvest is something that's completely out of your control. You need it to rain. It's gotta rain. And God is never gonna hold you or me responsible for whether or not it rains. But he is gonna hold us responsible for getting the ground ready for the rain, whether the rain comes or not. You see, God holds every single one of us responsible for doing the things he has called us to do. He never holds us responsible for the results of us obeying him. Those results belong to him. He doesn't hold you responsible for how your spouse responds to you being faithful to them. He doesn't hold you responsible for that. Even as a parent, he doesn't hold you responsible for what your child decides to do 
with all that you pour into them. As you pour in the word of God, as you pray for them, he holds you responsible to do that, but he does not hold you responsible even for what they choose to do with that. He holds you responsible for what he's called you to do, not for the results of your obedience. Those results belong to the Lord or they're somebody else's business. You see, God still used Noah and Jeremiah, even though nobody ever listened to them, because their preaching proved that God's desire was for people to turn away from wickedness. You understand that? So when we look at Noah, because Noah preached and nobody listened, we can still say God didn't want all those people to die in the flood. He wanted them to turn to him. So he had somebody make a giant practical sermon illustration by building this monstrous boat that everyone would hear about that nobody could ignore and then preach repentance. And it proves that God wanted them to see and change their heart, but they would not do that. Jeremiah spent his whole life telling Israel, turn to God, turn to God, turn to God. They wouldn't, but it still proved what God's heart was. It proved the love of God. And from God's perspective, that's a big, big deal. And you might be thinking, I know God's called me to not give up on my marriage and, and, and to work through our issues, but, but every time I bring something up or we try to work something, it blows up into an argument. So, so why shouldn't I just give up? There's only one question. What has God called you to do? What has he called you to do? Has he released you from your marriage? Has that been confirmed by the Bible and wise godly people, or has he called you to keep trying? And if he's called you to keep trying, maybe it's because you continuing to try is proven to your spouse that God's faithful to those who belong to him even when they don't deserve it. Maybe that's what the Lord is doing. Obedience is everything. On my roughest days in ministry and pastoring, when I've said to my wife, I'm, I'm done. I'm just done. I need to go get like a, a regular job where... Somebody just gives me a check every two weeks and everything is normal and I can just do something normal. And she's so good. My wife will always say to me, she'll say, uh, has God released you from your calling? And it's like, no. She's like, well, then what are we talking about? It's like, okay. <laughs> and I love her for that because what she's saying is she's saying, you, you, you've got a Calling and obedience is everything. It's got nothing to do with whether or not you're getting the results you think you should. The issue is obedience. Our whole life is not about results. It's about obedience to God and reframing our mind to say, if I can say I was obedient to God, then I'm successful. That's how I'm going to measure success in my life. In my life. Leading this church and teaching the word of God is one of the things God has called me to do. So if there's ever a Sunday when no one shows up, I can tell you what I'll be doing. I'll be teaching the word of God to an empty auditorium. I'll still be doing it because that's what God has called me to do. And that's how I measure success. That's how I want to measure success. You read through the Bible and you'll be struck by how many miracles would never have happened if God hadn't been able to find some people who were just willing to be obedient. Just willing to say yes to God. If your only motivation is results, you might be setting yourself up for failure. Because the results might not come. Be motivated by a desire to honor God by being obedient to him. Most of the time the results are completely out of your hands anyway. The flip side of that is that if you succeed in getting the results you want, 
but you fail in obeying the Lord. And you've missed the boat completely. It is meaningless to succeed in something the Lord has not called you to do. It doesn't matter if you become a multimillionaire by ignoring what God has actually called you to do. It's absolutely meaningless. That's what happened to King Saul. His results were spectacular. God says, you, you think I care about this? I, wanna, I want obedience. Just do what I say. That's what Jesus himself said. He said to the religious leaders, he says, you claim you love God? You don't even do what I ask you to do. What, what are you talking about? So for this point, the big question is this. What are the things in your life that you know the Lord has called you to do? What are the things in your life that you know the Lord has called you to do? And when it comes to those things, are you measuring success or failure based on the results or based on your obedience to God? Because there might be some of those things God has called you to do in life where right now you feel like an abject failure and it doesn't seem like things are going real well. And what the Lord is saying to you this morning is he's saying, listen, you're obeying me in that area. You're a success from my perspective. You don't have control over the results. Choose to say, if I can be obedient to the Lord, that is success for me. That is how I'm going to define success in my life. And I want to encourage you to make the decision that you're going to fight with everything you have to be obedient to the Lord in those areas. And here's what's so powerful about this. It is you're going to have days and times where nothing seems to be working in an area of your life. But if you can lay your head down at night and say, today I did what the Lord asked me to do, then it was a good day. It was a good day. It was a valuable day. Obedience is success. We're so results-driven in this life, I, th I think we're in for a huge surprise when we reach heaven because there's going to be some people in heaven who got no results in this life. None. There's going to be some Jeremiah's in heaven, some Noah's in heaven, but they're going to be highly honored in eternity because they were obedient to what the Lord called them to do. So what has the Lord called you to do? What has he called you to do? Focus on those things. Fight for those things. And don't measure success by results. Measure it by obedience to the Lord because that's how he's measuring your success. It's not going to help you if you get to heaven and say, look at all these great results I got. God says, uh, that's, that's not really a barometer we have here. We don't have a gauge for results. We, we just have one for obedience. That's all I'm interested in is what God's going to say. That's how he's measuring success. That's how he's going to give out rewards in heaven. And what I love about this is it means that whether you're a person of many resources or few, whether you come from a difficult background or a privileged upbringing, wherever you started, whatever you've gone through, wherever you are right now, you have the same opportunity at eternal rewards and a successful life in the eyes of God as any other person. Because God is not asking the question, will you get the same results as them? God is just saying, will you be obedient to what I've called you to do? That's it. That's the question. I find tremendous encouragement in that. I shared with you earlier in this message how I was struck by the number of people in the Bible that God called to do something yet never held them responsible for the results of what they were called to do. But as I read through the Bible, I'm also struck by the great things God accomplished through people who were simply willing to show up in faith. 
They had nothing else going for them other than the fact that they were willing to show up. I'm talking about people who didn't understand what God was going to do. I'm talking about people who didn't understand how God was going to do it. And yet because they knew God had called them to do something, they kept showing up for the next step and the step after that and the step after that. And God did some great things through men and women who were just willing to keep showing up. Make a note of this. God does great things in the lives of those who are willing to keep showing up where he calls them. He does great things in the lives of those who are willing to keep showing up where he calls them. I think of the incredible story of Gideon in the Bible. It's in Judges 6 and 7. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. So Israel has been rebelling against God again. And God puts them under the thumb of the Midianites for seven years. And they are just oppressed and raided and taken advantage of by these enemy people, the Midianites. And then after that time, God decides that Israel is ready to have a go, turning back to him again. So Jesus appears to a man named Gideon, who's literally the least important, least significant man in all of Israel. And Jesus tells Gideon, great news, God's going to deliver Israel from the Midianites, and I'm going to use you to do it. And Gideon's response is to say, well, if that's true, why have things been so difficult? Why have there been no miracles for so long? God says, don't worry about it. All that matters is that I'm with you and I've called you. And Gideon says, that's another problem. You've called me. I'm, I'm useless. I'm nothing. God says, don't worry about it. All that matters is that I've called you and I'm with you. And as pathetic as Gideon may seem, we're so often even worse because God comes to us and we quit before we even start. God says, okay, I'm calling you to this. I want you to move in this direction in your life. And you say, well, well, God, if you're really with me, why has my life been so difficult up to now? There's no way you can do something through me, God. I'm, I'm useless. And I think Gideon was still riddled with doubts. But you know why God used him? Because Gideon kept showing up. He goes, all right. I don't think Gideon has no idea at this point how God is going to do this. He knows who he is. He's a weak, feeble, unimportant man. He doesn't know how God is going to do this, but he says, uh, okay, let me go get something to, to sacrifice to you. And that's the thing about faith. This is big. We can't always control our emotions, but we can always control our actions. Can't always control our emotions. We can always control our actions. So when our emotions are all over the place, when it's fear, when it's doubt, when it's anxiety, when it's negativity, when our emotions are running wild, we can still choose to stop and say, oh, okay, what would a person of faith do in this situation? I don't feel like a person of faith, but what would a person of faith do in this situation? And then you know what you do? You fake it till you make it. You just fake it till you make it. And you keep showing up. And there's faith in that because what you're saying is, hey, my emotions aren't there. My emotions are not the mighty man of faith right now, the mighty woman of faith, but... Here's where the faith comes in. But I have come to realize my emotions are not trustworthy. Even my thoughts are not trustworthy. The word of God, trustworthy. So even though my emotions and thoughts are going nuts and are not full of faith right now, I'm going to say, what would a person of faith do in this situation? And I'm going to choose to do that thing. 
And as you take that step out, suddenly the faith shows up. It's amazing. When it comes to faith, write this down. We can't always control our emotions, but we can always control our actions. Can't always control our emotions, but we can always control our actions. Jesus touches the sacrifice Gideon brings with his staff. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes it on the spot, and then Jesus vanishes. And only then does Gideon say to himself, I think that might have been more than a regular guy. I think that may have been the angel of the Lord. Good job, Gideon. Good job. I can see why the Lord chose you. You're a sharp guy. Then the voice of God tells Gideon, destroy your father's idol of Baal. Tear it down. Build an altar to the Lord and sacrifice a bull on it. Gideon does it. And as soon as the men of the city find out about it, they want to kill him because they love Baal. They love their false gods. And here's the amazing thing. Gideon would have known to expect that response. This is what floors me about Gideon. He knows, man, if the guys find out about this, they're going to want to kill me. But he does it anyway. And he doesn't have any plan revealed to him from the Lord. Gideon, do it, but I've created a special hole that you're going to hide in for the next three years, and you're going to grow a long beard, and when you come out, no one will recognize you, so you'll live. No, no plan given to the Lord. Just tear the idol down. And he shows up. He keeps saying yes to God, even when he's got some serious, unanswered questions. How many of us slam on the brakes and stop doing what we know God has called us to do because we're like, not until I have more information. Not until I know what the whole plan is. Not until I know there's no risk involved. Not until I know the plan B. Not until I know that I'm going to be safe. Not one more step, God. I'm not obeying you in this anymore till you show me the whole plan. That's where we stay. And we stop showing up. Because God is saying, I'm trying to grow your faith here. We'll do this one step at a time. That's how we're going to do this. And so often we just stop showing up. We say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, God gets Gideon out of that mess. And after that, Gideon is like, okay, Lord, um, can you just remind me one more time that you're with me and I'm not losing my mind? And God gives him some incredible confirmations. But I want to encourage you to read this story because Gideon doesn't say, Gideon doesn't give God an ultimatum. He doesn't say, tell me how this is going to happen step by step. He doesn't say, give me a sign or I won't follow you anymore. He doesn't give God an ultimatum. He's just saying, would you just confirm for me one more time, you're with me, you're in this, and I'm not losing my mind. And I promise God always has patience and grace for that prayer. God does not respond to bratty behavior, though. So when we say, no, mm -mm, I'm not doing it till you tell me the whole plan, God doesn't respond to that. I don't respond to that as a parent with my kids. I'm like, you're going to be waiting a long time. But when we say, hey, I just, I just need to know one more time you're with me and you're still in this. He's a father. He comes along and he says, you got it. I'm still with you. I'm still in this. Because there's faith in saying, I don't need to know all the details, but I do need to know one thing. I need to know you're still with me. He's always got time for that, and he will always confirm that he's with you if you'll ask him to. The story goes on, and God leads Gideon through the most insane troop recruitment strategy where he sheds thousands of troops left and right and goes all the way down to 300 men. And then the Lord leads Gideon and Israel to a miraculous victory, and Gideon's part in it is simple. He just kept showing up. He just kept showing up for the next step.
When he got scared, he just said, God, are you still with me? Okay, cool, what's the next step? Listen, whatever God has called you to, the changes he's called you to make in your life, just keep showing up. Just keep showing up. Keep saying yes to God. When you fall, get back up and keep showing up. Keep showing up. There are so many days applying this to fitness. I don't have the energy to work out. I don't have the drive. My body feels like I can't do it. And on those days, all I focus on is showing up. That's it. I don't even think, how am I going to do this when I get there? All I'm focusing on is showing up. Because I've realized in my own life that whenever I show up, there's a chance of something good happening. When I show up, there's an infinitely greater chance of something good happening than if I don't show up at all. When you think about it, it's absolute insanity that we will stay somewhere where there's no hope of change and act as though that's a better place to be than somewhere that's a little bit risky, where there's the hope of real change. As long as you show up and you keep showing up, there's a chance that something really good is going to happen. And when we keep showing up to the things God has called us to in life, we will be amazed how God will meet us there and how God will supply the energy, the drive, and the miracles that we need. But so often, we're over here and we say, God, I won't move till you provide everything I need. And God is saying, move and I'll provide everything that you need. Because he wants us to take that step of faith. He wants us to take the step of faith. Is it easy? No. Is it scary? A lot of the time. Does it always make sense? Does it always even seem possible? No. But my goodness, the Lord loves to work in the lives of people who will simply keep showing up and keep saying yes to him. And my big point on this is this. As you're trying to make changes in your life, focus on obeying God and simply taking the next step. Don't allow yourself to fall victim to paralysis by analysis. I love that phrase. Paralysis by analysis. Rolls off the tongue. It's very satisfying. But it's just referring to this place where you can step back, look at the big picture and go, this, this is too overwhelming. So I'll do something more constructive. I'll just do nothing. When everybody who talks about managing a big task will tell you the secret is breaking it down into small steps. And most of the time, God does that for you. God doesn't come to you and just say, hey, I want you to get out of debt. That's it. He'll say, I want you to get out of debt. And he'll say, and here, here's the first step. I want you to go talk to this person who has the gift of wisdom in this area. Go talk to them about it. And God will guide you step by step. Don't become victim to paralysis by analysis. Take the next step and the step after that, and you'll be amazed how the Lord will meet you at each point on that journey. Could you imagine if Gideon had tried to think several steps ahead and make sure everything was covered? He'd be like, well, Lord, when I examine myself as a man with no military experience, taking on thousands and thousands of troops who hate us, I can't help but deduce that in just a few steps, my dismembered corpse will be lying at the feet of the Midianites. What are we going to do about that? Actually, Lord, you know what? Just, just forget the whole thing. He would never have gone through with it if he had demanded to know what the whole plan was from beginning to end. 
But Gideon didn't do that. He just said yes to the next step. And when he got nervous or scared, he just said, you're still with me, Lord, right? God says, yep. Okay, we'll go to the next step. Keep showing up. Even when it seems like nothing is happening, keep showing up. You know, sometimes the Lord leads you step by step towards a goal. But other times he calls you to accomplish something and he will actually leave the step-by-step part to you. And there are many reasons why the Lord might choose to do it this way. He could be wanting to teach you that he's with you, even in your thinking when it doesn't feel like it. I blogged about this earlier this week. I just said one of the hardest things for me to realize was that God is present with me all the time even in my thinking, that if I say, Lord, I want to do your will. I want to be in your will. I want to honor you. And I'm in one of those moments where there's there's like nothing coming from God. There's no voice. There's no nothing. Learning to have faith that God is with me even in my thinking, that he's guiding that, was a huge, huge step for me. Maybe God wants you to learn that and realize that he's really with you. Maybe God is wanting to teach you to humble yourself and reach out to others for help who are gifted in those areas. Maybe he's wanting to lead you deeper into his word so that you'll look there for wisdom and guidance. If you know God's called you to something but you're not sure how to accomplish it, how to accomplish it, don't be overwhelmed. Instead, break it down into step-by-step goals. Let's take the example of getting out of debt again. It might seem overwhelming and impossible. And so you don't take it as, how am I gonna get $30,000 out of debt? You break it down into steps. You find that person who knows what they're doing. You meet with them. You change your budget. You manage your expenses. You find a next step, and you just keep showing up. You just keep showing up. If you want to get healthy, you don't just give up because you go, well, how am I going to lose 50 pounds? Step one is go online, find a gym in your area. Step two, go sign up for that gym. Step three, Find out what hours they're open and commit to a schedule. Break it down into steps. And one of the stories that has blessed me the most was told to me by a friend of mine who was visiting the underground church in Cuba a few years ago. The story always messes me up. So he goes there, and like most underground churches in highly persecuted countries, he's going there to encourage the church, and he goes there and finds they don't really need any encouragement, but he's incredibly encouraged by them because God is just moving there. And he finds out that these Cuban underground Christians believe the Lord has told them that the borders of Cuba are going to open up in the very near future and they're going to be allowed to travel freely around the world. And so what they said is they said, man, this is exciting. We can go as missionaries all over the world. And so they said, well, well what's our next step? What can we do right now? And so you know what they're doing? They're learning to speak the languages of the countries they believe God has called them to right now so that as soon as the borders open, they'll be ready to go. That's the level of faith they have. And they found that next step they can do right now. You see, God does incredible, incredible things when we will stop saying, well, until this happens, there's no point doing any of this. When we begin to say, yeah, but what can I do now? God begins to show up. I think God is moving a lot more powerfully in the life of the single person who's serious about getting ready for marriage than the single person who says, well, there's no point getting ready for marriage until somebody comes along. So until then, I'm just going to hang out here in my PJs with these Cheetos 
and uh, get wildly into debt on frivolous expenses, and then I'll get it all together when I meet someone. Where? Where are you going to meet someone who's looking for that? Nobody's looking for that. Come on. But to the single person who says, hey, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on getting my finances together so that when God sends me into the right relationship, I'm not bringing tons of debt into it. I'm going to start working on that now so that I can be a blessing to them. I'm going to work on getting healthy. I'm going to work on growing in my relationship with the Lord so that when I get into a relationship, I'm not going into it telling them, I'm so excited I'm married. You are now responsible for my self-esteem, my peace, my joy, my hope, and everything. But no pressure. The person who says, I'm going to focus on the things I can do now, my next step now. You know what happens? God shows up with the next step. But when we take the attitude of no, 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 until until something miraculous happens, there's no point starting. Until God does a miracle, there's no point even beginning to work on my finances. There's just no point. Nothing's ever going to happen. What's the next step you can take right now? Now, figure out your next step. Don't quit just because you don't know how step 10 is going to get accomplished. you got nine steps you can be working on right now. Figure it out and take your next step in faith. Malcolm Gladwell is an author who researched what it takes to become an expert in any field. And it's fascinating. He came upon this figure and he said, basically, in his opinion and his research, it took 10,000 hours in a specific area of expertise in order to become an expert in that area. And I found this figure really, really interesting for a lot of reasons because I thought about all the young kids in sports. Just think about all the young kids who are hockey players and and they're 16 and you hear people talk about them like, oh, he's a natural, he's a natural. And you realize he's not a natural. That kid has put in 13,000 hours of playing hockey, going to practices, working in the driveway on shots. He's done like 13,000 hours by the time he's 14 or 15. The fact that he's good is not because he's a natural. He is good at what he does because he has an uncommon passion for hockey. He loves hockey, so he works at it, and he accumulates enough hours and experience to become an expert at it. And you might be like, Jeff, I don't feel like this applies. My window to be a professional hockey player has closed. But here's what struck me as I was thinking about this. The hours that kid was putting in when he was five years old, tripping over his feet, those hours matter just as much as the hours when he's 16 and getting scouted by the pros. They matter the same because they're going towards the same goal. It was observed by Aristotle that he watched a man in a quarry hitting a giant stone. He was trying to break off this giant piece of marble and he watched him day after day hitting the same spot with a hammer. I don't know if this is true, but it's a great illustration, so just hang with me. He's hitting the hammer and then Aristotle says, I watched and on about the 10,000th hit, the marble split. And Aristotle said, here's what I know. It wasn't the 10,000th hit that made the marble break. It was all the ones before it accumulated. So here's what I want us to take from this practical bit of information. Wherever you are right now in an area where you desire to see change, it might feel insignificant. You know, if you want to get healthy, you're going to go to the gym and you're going to be like, after a week, this means nothing. There's no change. If you want to work on a marriage and you begin to show 
uncommon kindness towards your spouse, you might see no change. But those first hours that you put in where there seems to be no measurable difference matter just as much as the final hours before there's that real breakthrough. And it's having that big picture understanding that leads to some of the best things in life. Some of you long to be experts in the Bible. I just want to know more about the Bible, but I just don't know anything about it. Start. Just start. Just saying, hey, I've got some time in my life right now. I'm just going to read the Word and some commentaries for an hour a day, and you will be amazed what the Lord will do in that. Whatever your goal is, understand that the time you pour into it at the beginning is just as vital as the time right at the end. And most people never get to those final few hours before the huge breakthrough because they're not willing to go through those hours at the beginning. They think there's nothing happening, it's insignificant, there's no point. Psalm 109 verse 12 says this. This is the prayer of this psalm. God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I love that. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. See, something the Lord has called you to in your life might seem so impossible and so far away. You might say, but that would take 10 years. But here's the thing. Unless Jesus comes back, 2027 is going to happen. The next 10 years are going to happen. And even though 10 years might seem so far away to work towards something, unless Jesus comes back, 2027 is going to arrive. And when it does, you will either have accomplished that great goal or you'll be exactly where you are right now. You'll be in the same place. So if there's an area of life that God is calling you to change, something he's calling you to do, start doing it now. Start doing it now. No hour is insignificant. No small step toward a godly goal is worthless. None. I've never met a Christian who said, you know, God called me to make this change in my life and I put it off for years. And man, was that ever the right decision. I've never met that person. No Christian's ever said that. All I've ever heard is, you know, I knew the Lord was calling me to make this change and I kept putting it off and I wish I had done it sooner. That's the only version of that I've heard over and over again. I wish I had done it sooner. And here's why. You can make a note of this. The sooner we get in agreement with God and make the changes he's asking us to, the sooner we'll experience his benefits and blessings in that area of our life. The sooner we get in agreement with him and make those changes, the sooner we'll experience his benefits and blessing in that area of our life. If he's asking you to work on your marriage, why why would you delay experiencing the benefits of God's blessing? In your finances, why would you want to put off experiencing the blessings of God? In your job, in in your personal holiness, why would you want to put off those blessings? Don't allow yourself to be the same person at the end of this year that you are right now because wherever you are in life, God wants to grow you to become more like Jesus. There are things that he wants to do in your life this year. Commit yourself to those things wholeheartedly. These are the last couple of things I'm going to share. I want to encourage you, just journal this stuff. Make a note of it. Write down your goals. Write down what the Lord is calling you to do because if you'll commit yourself to it, 
you'll be astounded what he will accomplish even in just one year. Even in just one year. And then I want to remind you of Samuel's words to King Saul. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. I like to put it this way. Many of you are familiar with Gary Chapman's phenomenal book on on marriage and relationships called The Five Love Languages. And he talks about the different ways people receive love. And he talks about things like touch, acts of service, and giving gifts. You read the Bible and it becomes very clear that if God has a love language, it's obedience. If God has a love language, it is obedience. You want the Lord to know that you love him? Obey him. Obey him. Because obedience reveals trust in him. The truth is whenever we don't obey God, we're saying, I think my way would be better. I don't fully trust you in this area. But don't miss what Samuel said next. He said, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord. If you know what God has called you to do and and you're delaying your obedience or obeying in part, it's not a small thing. It's not a small thing. And I know that the, the trendy thing to do in the name of grace would just be to say, well, you know, we're all in different places and we're all on different journeys. So if you're obeying God 70% in an area of your life, then that's fine. You do you and I'll do me. But the problem is that that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says knowing what God wants us to do and refusing to do it is rebellion that's the same as witchcraft. It says our stubbornness is not a quirk. It's idolatry because it means we've rejected the word of the Lord. And if we've been doing that in any way, then we need to repent today. And our repentance isn't shown by words. It's going to be revealed by our actions. So don't delay in obeying the Lord. Don't put it off. Don't be stubborn. Do it now. Honor God. Bless God. You want God to know that you love him? Obey him. That's what he wants. That's what he told Saul. He'd say the same thing to you and I. If you're in rebellion against the Lord in any area of your life and you're coming here and going, oh, Lord, I love you, I bless you. God's saying, well, then why don't you do what you know I want you to do? Why don't you obey me? That's what he really wants us to do more than anything. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And the Father, we want to come before you and honestly acknowledge what your word says. Father, if we have been ignoring your commands, if we've been obeying you in part and pretending that's, that's good enough, that's fine. If we've been putting off obedience, God, would you forgive us? And would you help us to repent, not with words or with tears, but with a real change in our lives, in our actions? Would you help us to get in agreement with you, God? We recognize that your way is the most beneficial, blessed way we could go about anything in life. And so we recognize it's the best way to do everything in life, your way, Lord God. Father, we pray that you would be honored. 
by our obedience. Lord, I pray for every person in this room who knows what you've called them to do, but it just seems so big and so overwhelming. Would you remind them by the power of your Holy Spirit that with man it may be impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that where you have called us to do something, you will provide what we need to obey. You'll provide the energy. You'll provide the faith. You'll provide the wisdom. You'll provide the counsel. You'll provide the encouragement. You'll provide everything we need. Help us to step out in faith, believing and knowing that you will meet us there as we do that. God, I pray that this would be an incredible year of growth in each of our lives. Not even by results, but by obedience, Lord. May we be found being obedient to you in each and every area of our lives. And I know, Lord, that as we do that, as a church, as a people, as individuals, we're going to see your hand and your favor and your blessings in our lives in incredible, incredible ways. Help us to live and walk and be in agreement with you, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.